Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by our buddies at Mubi, who are celebrating International Women's Day, and they want you to celebrate with them. And you should, because they are starting with The Bigamist. This movie is by a person I love, Ida Lupino. She's amazing. Oh, yeah. I've talked about her a bit. She shot um, some amazing episodes of The Twilight Zone. Yes. She shot a bunch of stuff. I love a movie called The Hitchhiker. Ida Lupino is amazing. She should be bigger than she is. And if you haven't caught up on her, you can watch an Ida Lupino movie right now for free on Mubi, The Bigamist. What you want to do is you want to go to Mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com slash unspooled. That's M-U-B-I.com slash unspooled. You can get a whole month of great cinema for free, and you can celebrate International Women's Day with them and Ida. And oh my God, it'll be fun. Enjoy. I love it. Movie! It's 1998, and faces are falling off. The movie? Saving Private Ryan. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we watch a film from the AFI Top 100 Greatest Films of All Time list from 2007 to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Amy, last week we talked about The Graduate. And I think it's good to kind of look back and see what people were saying. Um, someone found the Who's the Boss clip that I referenced in the episode. And I have to tell you, I watched it uh, this morning and just as sexy as I remember it. Um, the conceit that they had to go through for Angela not to hear Tony entering was that she was wearing a pair of portable headphones with antennas out of them so she couldn't hear him creeping up. But I also was confused, like, why was Tony using her bathroom to take a bath? It's a great sequence. You should watch it. It's flawless, just like The Graduate. <laughs> well, you cannot say who's the boss without me at least saying, may we have a hat tip to Mrs. Helmond, Catherine oh. Helmond from Who's the Boss, who we lost this week. We also have not gotten to mention that we lost Stanley Donan, the director, yes. of, uh, the director of Singing in the Rain. You know, it's so interesting, Amy, seeing the response to Stanley Donan. He affected so many people, and we got to see a lot of his work, especially um, on Twitter and Instagram, as people like pulled their favorite uh, screen grabs. And I really, uh, I was really happy to see that. You don't often see someone like that get that much kind of response online. 
especially somebody like that, who I think a lot of people might know the name Singing in the Rain before they know Stanley Donan. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like Stanley Donan isn't a name that we know as like a great director, even though he was. It's just sort of sometimes, you know, the films are bigger than the directors behind them. You know, there's a lot of talk last week about Mrs. Robinson. You and I had this conversation about like, why is she attracted to Benjamin. I feel like this movie has been really interesting to see the response to because there's been many different takes on it. For me, I always thought The Graduate was just a beloved film, but when I look online and I read the comments, I see that some people really love it, connect with it, other people really are against it, and then there's even another contingent of like, what is this movie saying? I mean, is this in in a way just a glorified case of sexual assault. You know, it's like there's many different ways that we can kind of look at this movie. So I found that to be the most interesting because it felt like the easiest kind of down-the-middle AFI classic film, but not everyone agrees. It's true. And, you know, it gets really complicated because I think if you asked anybody who was on the set of The Graduate making The Graduate at the time, they would all say, this is not a movie about sexual assault. Right. And so it gets really interesting and complicated when we have to try to talk about it in the present and say, that's not how they saw it. So how much of this conversation should we be having when we're trying to converse with this film as it stands versus the present? There is no really good answer to this. No. And I mean, I think we're getting into this kind of muddy water throughout this podcast. You know, for example, something that was really big in the news in the last couple of weeks was this uh, John Wayne interview that came out in Playboy. We referenced uh, some of it. We did, yeah. And it was even worse than we even delved into as people kind of pulled these quotes. You can go find it online if you'd like. Uh, but Karen Lee said, you know, do you think it's because of the episode on The Searchers that this even came out? All I'm going to say is this. It's been interesting since we've been doing this podcast. That came to light. The ending of 2001 came to light. There's been a couple of things. I think that we uh, hopefully are getting people to dive a little bit deeper. I don't know if we're responsible for it, but if, if someone wants to say that we are, I'm going to take them on their face value. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really interesting, though, that like one of the articles that was sent to us, the one that Karen sent to us, they're talking about renaming the John Wayne Airport to yes. get rid of John Wayne, you know, and using this interview as one of the springboards and trying to draw the point of like, you can't just say that John Wayne was a man of his times. He gave that Playboy interview in 1971 yeah. after MLK, which was in the piece, like well, after the civil rights movement, he knew what he was reacting against. He saw the future and he was refusing to take part of it. He wasn't just ignorant. I think the most important thing always is no matter where you find yourself on the spectrum, you know, whether it's The Graduate, whether it's John Wayne, that it is a conversation to have and know that people out there have opinions. And it's good to hear someone else's opinions. I, you know, I often read things after we have a conversation here on the show and I don't necessarily agree with it, but it's interesting to just hear a take and really just take it in. It's, it doesn't affect anything. It's not going to wreck this movie, but it is also great to sit back and just see how other people are interpreting it. Yeah. You know, sometimes I kind of picture it like, did you play a lot of Trivial Pursuit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I picture takes as like different colors filling in this rainbow of what this piece is. Yeah. And like the takes don't have to blend or be homogenous and be the same color. They're just the different takes that make up what a movie is, the different ways of approaching it. <laughs> but you know what is um, one easy perspective to have, which is to support the show by buying our awesome merch. Uh, we have an amazing poster, if you haven't checked it out, designed by Scott uh, C. Scott C. is this amazing watercolor artist who does some beautiful drawings. He made a poster for us with an image that represents each individual film. It is available right now at podswag.com you can check it out and if you want to buy like the bigger package you can get that poster and you can get a hundred sided die i'll tell you that i framed my poster amy 
and I can mark on my framed poster what movies we've watched with a, a little uh, marker that can write on glass. It's great. I love that. And by the way, uh, I don't know if people know this, but you and I and our lovely producer, Josh, we came up with the pictures yes. <laughs> for that poster. Yes. We were like, let's use that to symbolize, well, what we're talking about today, a helmet for Saving Private Ryan. And you know what? Before we even get into Saving Private Ryan, I think it's also worth talking about a very big story in the news right now about the director of Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg. This whole week, people have been talking about uh, Steven Spielberg talking to the Academy about what makes a best picture a best picture. And in his mind, he believes it needs to be out in a theater for at least four weeks before it can be nominated for best picture. And it's an interesting debate because there are a lot of things that block films from getting a wide release like that. Um, do you have any hot take on it? Well, my one hot take is I think it's interesting to put together the facts that Spielberg has called himself a very big fan of Green Book. Right. Uh, and I think it's also interesting that Spielberg himself has not won a director Oscar in the last 20 years uh, since the movie that we're going to talk about, Saving Private Ryan. And I wonder if there's a little bit of him being like, grumble, grumble, my movies like The Post are getting pushed aside. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if... It is, again, this conversation about things changing. And whenever things change, the old guard – and you can't argue that Steven Spielberg isn't the old guard. It doesn't mean he's not talented, but he has come from a different time where films meant a certain thing. And, and even his association with it is different. I'm sure when Spielberg is watching a film at home, it's in a beautiful screening room. He's not just – popping in a Blu-ray or streaming it on we iTunes. We're like, Mr. Spielberg, may I bring my print over? I mean, <laughs> it reminds me a little bit about when I was really first getting into film and we were in the thick of the fight between is a movie shot on digital a film? Right, And people yes. are really mad about that. I mean, I, I like that if there's anything that is a continuous thread in Hollywood, we're going to just keep fighting. Yeah. As fighting is our fighting well, is our theme. I think that we always feel like we can't change it. We can't, you know. This, this is the is, way it's always been for 20 years. And, but, it, you know, I think that, you know, Franklin Leonard said it really well. And I want to read what he wrote. He said, the decision to release a film with a four-week exclusive theatrical run in 2019 is a financial one, determined by many things, among them biases about what has financial value and what doesn't. Eligibility for Academy Awards shouldn't be. And I think that's a very succinct answer to, a, you know, a bigger, this big question. It's like, Let's release the films. I mean, clearly Roma connected with people. And I think more people probably saw Roma than they would have seen it in the theater. And I think that's a good thing because that means that film is winning. You get exposed to it. I, you know, I just think that people aren't even watching foreign language films ultimately, you know. So I mean, I think what, what Franklin seems to be like also picking up on is that we're sort of in this like rippling changeover amorphous time where we are reproving the viability of the box office for all sorts of people, where we're right. saying like, yeah, huge numbers of women will show up. Huge numbers of people of color will show up to Crazy Rich Asians. We're seeing that it is working. And yet I believe that maybe he's worried that there are still old school people who don't want to like put movies like Roma in theaters and would right. be like, that's too small. Who would care about it? Let's take this idea of casting and put it backwards to The Graduate. Last week, we asked you, who do you think would be better in The Graduate from the film Saving Private Ryan? I had a quick and easy answer, which was, of course, my man, Giovanni Rabisi. Let's see what you all have to say about who would be a better Benjamin Braddock from Saving Private Ryan. I was thinking most likely Brian Cranston, mostly because of his ability to go from sheepish to comedian to, you know, here and or there, or yada, yada. 
Michael Sarah. He was uh, uncredited in Saving Private Ryan. You might remember him. He was one of the children in the background during one of the bombing scenes. I think Tom Sizemore. Tom Sizemore, definitely. He'd be all jittery and nervous, sweaty, you know, the messed out Tom Sizemore. I could totally see Tom Hanks, a young 80s splash era Tom Hanks, fitting really well as Ben Braddock. Ultimately, I got to go with uh, Jeremy Davies, especially if you compare it to his role on Lost as Daniel Faraday. He has that same sort of nervous sadness to him uh, that I think would be a really great version of Benjamin Braddock. The actor from Saving Private Ryan who should play Benjamin Braddock is obviously Adam Goldberg. He might not be blonde enough for Amy, but at least he's tattooed. I think Adam Goldberg would be great as Benjamin Braddock, and he's got sex appeal as well. So that's my vote. Thanks, guys. Love the show. You know what's really funny about this cast of Saving Private Ryan is, you know, in a war movie like this, you can you're usually sort of like, okay, giant cast, the least popular person dies first, and right. you kind of work backwards from there to like your biggest star kind of lives the longest towards the end right. as part of that final group. Tom Sizemore. <laughs> I mean, I feel like what's funny watching Saving Private Ryan today is that I think they put their chips on everybody in the wrong order. They're like Vin Diesel, <laughs> kill him first. Edward Burns, keep him around. Well, Edward Burns was like the big star of this film. I mean, we'll get into it. I mean, personally, I also feel like after watching the film again, you know, uh, a real great Benjamin Braddock might have been that German uh, guy who stabbed Vin Diesel in the heart because, you know, Benjamin Braddock kind of stabbed uh, Mrs. Robinson in the heart by stealing his daughter right from the altar. Anyway, Amy, uh, (laughs) do you want to get into it? (laughs) Let's get into it. The year is 1998, and Bill Clinton says, in this year, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The top song is Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. The Yankees won the World Series. MP3s were invented, and Roger Ebert's review of the movie Enemy of the State was... I don't believe the feds have computers at Fort Meade monitoring our phone calls. Whoa! Uh, I read that as a screenwriter's invention. Whoa! End quote. Um, so what a year. Um, the movie this week ranked 71 on AFI's list. It is Saving Private Ryan. Tell us, Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Saving Private Ryan, it stars Tom Hanks, America's dad, as Captain Miller. And then as his band of people, you got Tom Sizemore, Adam Goldberg, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, Vin Diesel, Giovanni Ribisi, and Jeremy Davies. They're all in search of Matt Damon. Matt Damon is the last of four brothers who has been sent to war. His three brothers have died. There's a new law in the military. We have to save that last brother so that a woman will not lose all of her kids all at once. And so these men go on a hunt from the beaches of Omaha to the depths of France, maybe not that deep into France, to find Matt Damon while having a debate about, like, is it worth risking all of our lives to bring back this one dude? So, Amy, this is a film that I will say is so respected in our culture, so much so that I was very excited to watch Saving Private Ryan. And I realized as I put it on oh, I really only think about that first 30-minute chunk, that D-Day montage. I even forgot about the opening and closing, the bookends of this movie, which I want to talk about a little bit later. But really that first 30 minutes, it is, if you're taking film, I I think you would be hard-pressed to find anyone to say that that is not a beautifully executed, amazing distillation capturing of war. You know, like... And it really puts you there. It's on handheld cameras. It's switching perspectives. It it like Spielberg is at the top of his game shooting this D-Day invasion, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is what everybody talked about even when the film came out, this D-Day invasion. It goes on for almost half an hour. 
it is extremely intense. You know, he is using every single tool in his disposal. He's using, of course, like blood and squibs. He's toned down the color. It's almost like he's working in kind of that same key of of Schindler's List. Where he's like, what if things were almost black and white, but I had the little red color here? It's like, what if yeah. they're almost just gray and blues and a little bit of red blood to remind you of that and some red explosives when those have to like pop into the frame. And he's doing things where, you know, they're constantly changing, um, you know, the speed in which the film is even being processed. It looks almost like war photography, which is something that was intentional. Spielberg was trying to capture that kind of look. Exactly. Again, it's almost like Schindler's List just amped up. He was yeah. like, what if we were handheld and aggro? And here he's like, what if we're really handheld and aggro? Yeah. And, and as an audience member, I think you go from being on the boat with them and it feels like a movie, a war film, and the first time you see violence, like these people getting shot in the head, and it's violent for Spielberg at this point, especially in 1998, you are feeling it. You're like, whoa, and you, people are falling, you know, falling over the side of the boat. You're underwater with them. Sounds going in and out. It's disorienting. And as the sequence goes on, this 30-minute sequence, you start to become numb to death. You know, you're seeing literally a man with his face hollowed out from a bullet hole, you know, a man walking around with no arms, you know, picking up his arm. Like there are some shocking images, but I think it does an amazing job at putting you in the perspective of a soldier. By the time you get to the top and, you know, and they basically, you know, let these, these Nazis burn alive, you're like, yeah, they should burn alive. And it's not because like down with the Nazis, it's, it's down with these people who have been basically killing everyone that we've just watched on screen, even though they are technically faceless because we don't know these characters yet or not many of them. It, it's a pretty powerful and well done sequence. Yeah, I mean, the Nazis are literally faceless. Like what we see of them is just a couple shots over their shoulder as we see their hands on the machine guns mowing down everybody. Yeah, I mean. And, and disorientation, the word they're using is like exactly the right word because he's kind of. He's making you do these double takes even within scenes. Tom Hanks turns to a guy. He uses his walkie-talkie. He turns back. He gives an order. He turns back to the man, and the man's face is gone. Like, yeah. it, it's almost, it reminds me of being like a toddler and learning that objects have permanence. And you're like, whoa, I didn't know if that was going to be gone. I don't know what's happening. Yeah, you you are you are at points feeling emotional about things, and then at points you're just feeling totally just you know, numb. And then, you know, like even that quick pan of the one guy just screaming for his mother on the beach, like, oh, you know, it's like, you're just on this uh, roller coaster, you know, and to a certain point that the original 30 minutes was so brutal that um, Spielberg's editor was like, you got to walk this back. It's too intense. You know, even when military historian and D-Day veteran Stephen Ambrose, who's written, you know, an amazing amount of books, first watched it, he couldn't even last past 20 minutes. He's like, I just had to leave because of all these memories that came flooding back. And it made me realize, you know, Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg have gone on to explore war and especially World War II a few more times. You know, Tom Hanks definitely in documentaries, Band of Brothers. And I feel like this is the most realistic depiction of war. You know, I think that that's probably the the biggest compliment I can give this film is like, wow, the, the, the fight sequences are really epic in a way that I think I enjoyed more than Dunkirk. Well, he's making it basically 
POV. You know, mm-hmm. the, the shot that I always think about is pretty early on. The men are trying to get off the boat. And when they go underwater, he makes us go underwater, not just visually, but with sound. Here, let's yeah. listen to that. He is putting you there. He is saying, this is what it's like. But he's not making you a person. He's just making you almost this like observer of of absolute chaos. So you do, I think, really get that this isn't just like orderly battle. This is complete mayhem. And I think it I'm curious what you think about this. I feel like he's sort of riffing off of things like Platoon. He's like, you know what? Platoon got to get to the chaos of war. I want to get to the chaos of war because we never really got to see, this is what he kept saying in all his interviews, we never got to see World War II done chaos. Well, I feel like this movie is really hard to watch right now from a few different points of view. It is brutal. It is a brutal film. And it's not like one that you would just want to pop on. And it made me realize like, oh, this is not a Steven Spielberg movie that I go back to. I go back to a lot of his films. But I would say that like um, this and Schindler's are kind of films that you watch once and it stays with you for a long time. But they're not like – Hey, hey, you know, uh, this is my favorite. I don't think anyone's I got a pizza, fav- baby. Come yeah. over. We're watching Save a Private Ryan. Um, but I was saying the other part about it, besides the violence on screen, is where does any of this stuff begin and end? You know, we, we've we seen this movie remade again. We've seen versions of this. People obviously took from this. This movie's a huge hit. It's uh, winning you know, uh, not only technical awards, but best picture award, you know, it's winning everything at the Oscars. And so I think it's been copied a lot of times. So it's an interesting film because there are certain things I feel about it. Then I'm like, I wonder if it's the way I would have felt when I saw it in 1998 versus now, because now some of these things are a little bit more commonplace and it feels a little tropey. Well, I will say it was really weird rewatching Saving Private Ryan now that I have seen Sausage Party. Oh, (laughs) because you've seen Sasha's party. Yes, of course. And you know, they have the entire like grocery store saving Private Ryan death scene where like an Oreo loses the top of its Oreo face and a banana peel just peels off and there's flour hitting the ground causing that same sort of bleached out white smoke that, that Spielberg is using just to have all his images be really stark against the whiteness. I kept putting hot dogs into it now because I have seen Sausage Party. <laughs> I, would, I would have liked to have envisioned this. Enti- we should have watched this, the the uh, Sausage Party version of it. If I could just jump back and give a bigger point of view about this movie, and it may be a very unpopular opinion. And as we talk about this film, I want to put this on the same pedestal that we put in movies like Schindler's List and Sophie's Choice. Yes, this is based in historical truth. This is not talking about the soldiers. It's not talking about the war. It's talking about the film. So I, I think that this movie is kind of lacking an overarching narrative. Like, it's a very simple movie. It's like battle scene to battle scene to battle scene to battle scene. And yes, there is this idea of we need to find Private Ryan and is it worth it? But it's very simple. And and I would say the best takeaway from the film is maybe the brutality of war. I, I think... Because the other side is faceless, you really identify with the soldiers. It's not buddy-buddy in a way that, you know, Guns of Navarone is buddy-buddy. You know, it's not like Dirty Dozen. You know, it's a very brutal, you know, version of World War II. And I would say that I think I connect more to Band of Brothers, the HBO show, which I think really um, blew out characters and, and story. And this is really interesting sequences. They're great set pieces. But 
as far as a movie, it, it kind of lacks all the things that I look for in a Spielberg film. I, I don't think it has the emotional heart. I don't think it has those little charming moments. And we found charming moments in Schindler's too. And it, it, there's a little humor here and whatever, but it feels like a director making a choice to be different rather than Spielberg bringing his own sense of self to it, where I feel like Schindler's feels very personal to Spielberg. This feels like Spielberg making a war movie, not like, I don't know. Do, am I making I sense in this? You are. You are. Because I kind of felt the same way. I'm watching Saving Private Ryan after watching Schindler's List, A, I'm like, we don't need both of these. In, in in the idea of film or on the idea of the on the list? On the idea of the list. Well, he has five films on the list. And that's an interesting conversation we should, we should maybe at the end kind of look at because that yeah. that's a, a lot. A, I think that's too many. But B, if you're going to have five, I would put Jurassic Park in here over Saving Pirate Ryan. No, I, I mean, <laughs> I would 100% agree. Because to me, that's like more of his range. I mean, what is interesting about Saving Pirate Ryan is – he does, he does Schindler's List. It's really wonderful. He gets treated with a lot of respect. He does Amistad right after this. You know, he again, like, people are like, wow, he's really serious, this Spielberg guy. Right. And he feels like Amistad didn't get enough respect because there was a lawsuit. It was, like, sued for, like, plagiarizing, right. and it wasn't, but I don't know. Very complicated. So then he's like, okay, I'm going to do this again. It feels like he's proving something, and I don't quite know who it is or why to who. It, there's something in Saving Private Ryan that doesn't feel authentic to me about Spielberg. And it's like strange because I couldn't help but think this as I was watching this opening scene, you know, to take it here. He didn't experience this. You know, his dad was in war. His dad, his dad, I think, was in the Air Force. No, he said that, you know, like this is the reason why he wanted to make this World War II film was because this is what was talked about at his kitchen table all, you know, through his life. And he'd been doing, he did like one of his first movies when he was a kid. He did a World War II movie. Like, I think his mom played a Nazi. Right. All of his friends were there. I think they had bags of flour using it for explosions. Like, and that just, was his very first movie ever. And just so you know, his dad was in the Army Air Corps from 1942 to 1945. But what I feel is his fascination with making a war movie. Mm -hmm. And not his fascination with making a story about these guys. It felt to me, and I agree with you, like, and this is, I have the utmost respect for Steven Spielberg. It's like, I won't put that out there. I mean, we're not like shitting on Spielberg. But it felt to me like a kid making a war film. It was like, like he shot amazing war footage. And then when you're a kid and you're making movies, I don't know, that's what you're going for. It's like the kids who made Raiders. We talked about them. You know, you want to recreate these action sequences. I think oftentimes when you're doing that, you're not creating like the great drama, the great narrative uh, between characters. And I feel like, that's what I'm missing. I, I like, yes, all these actors are in it. And and part of the thing that makes these actors kind of pop off the screen, and I would say Barry Pepper is, is I think, my favorite actor in this film. Uh, I think he does an, a fantastic job. But these characters are, I'm not, I'm not leaving going like, oh, can't believe Vin Diesel's character died. Like, you know, it would. Well, yeah, there's something weird that he does, like, the, it, with the structure of it. And I respect where he starts, and then I think he can't have it in every way. Right. Like, I think he made a choice and then tried to walk it back. But he made the choice to launch us into war as something disorienting. We don't know who's in charge. We don't know who matters. He's not checking in with people that we're supposed to care about yet. We don't know anybody. We're not really clear on who our leads are going to be besides Hanks until, like, 20 minutes in when and he, he starts does, giving them names. And he does this kind of filmmaker trickery, which is, like, the opening prologue, you know, starts on this older man. And I think you as the audience member are supposed to believe that that's Tom Hanks. Right, you know? because he zooms into his eyes mm -hmm. and then he zooms out of his eyes onto the beach. Right. And then you're sort of like at the end, 
hold on. If that's Matt Damon, which it is, yeah. Matt Damon didn't see this. Right. It's a little it's a little tricky. And I would I would also say, just so we if we're in this prologue moment, I want to give a little bit of like hands up to the actor who is playing old man Matt Damon, because that's a really tricky part to do, you know. Um, he comes in there, and I think that the the bookends of this movie get a lot of short shrift, and I understand why, because it's uh, bookends that really make the film patriotic. It's a, a lot about the flag and a lot about mm. our soldiers. Although but the I think, flag, like, bleached in a way where you can't tell if he's patriotic or sad or mournful. He's not, yeah. It's not vibrant. It's, it's, it's a, like, it's either, it feels a little bit like, you've forgotten this. It feels a little, I can't tell if it's negative. It's negative, but I don't know towards who. I mean, but I just want to give a shout out to that actor, old man Matt Damon, Harrison Young. Um, watching it from an acting standpoint, and I'm like, okay, it's my first day on set. I'm only going to work one day on this movie. I have to basically have a tremendous breakdown. I have nothing before, nothing after, very little to show me what I am. I mean, you know, it, we know at the end a little bit more about what he's coming into. I mean, I think he was good, but there is some distracting stuff happening in the image, right. which is over his shoulder. You have this frozen tableau of all of his shockingly blonde family members. <laughs> I'm not judging them. That's what my family no. looks like. We're a very blonde family. Right. But like they're shockingly blonde. They're all maintaining this very respectful distance, which is almost like they're afraid of him. Not, they're not saying they're right. afraid of him, but they walk to the cemetery many feet behind him. Right. They're standing many feet behind him at the grave. They're still in the frame. And there's just this weirdness to to the whole scene where I'm like, what's going on with this family? Because you, you can agree. see them and they're really visible and they're like frozen. Well, They're frozen like something bad is going to happen. While don't help pops. Don't help pops. Right, while he's acting in the foreground. Well, and, it, and it's, it's weird, right? Well, again, here's the thing about this prologue and, and you know, probably we're the, the only people that are getting so into this 60 seconds of the film, but I'm going to say something that pissed me off about it. Well, <laughs> you walk into this movie and you're like, here's this guy and he's going uh, back, you know, to this war memorial to see and and respect the soldiers that you know that died alongside of him and you and you, and, and as an audience member i'm like yes like wow that's beautiful what a beautiful moment and then at the end it's revealed that basically tom hanks says the most dickiest thing you could say to anybody who was like make a count tremendous stress on this guy's life did he make it count did he make it matter whatever he, he has to do and then he's basically going there and being like did I do it? This is my weirdo family that are judging me. Am I a good person? Like he's going there with a guilt trip the size of anything. It's like, it's not uh, this benevolent, like, oh my God, look at all the people who died. It's like, eh, did I do okay, teach? Did I do okay? It's like, a, no, like, oh my God, look at me. I, you know, I don't know. I think it's weird. It's a weird way to like be like, that's why he's there? I mean, technically like Tom Hanks behind his back, I guess, is like he'd better, what, cure cancer? I'm pretty, right. I mean, we still have cancer, so he didn't do what Tom Hanks wanted I mean, it didn't do. seem like he did it. Look, look, he didn't do anything. If he did something, he would be jetting in there on a private jet and rappelling down with a bunch oh of bodyguards. No. Uh, I mean, it doesn't <laughs> seem like – okay, now we're getting really into the weeds. Yeah. Hey, guys. I mean, it, it, okay, it doesn't seem like – to me – and this, this is very just like coming through my own POV. Sure. To honor a person's life and death means to keep them alive also in speaking of them. Yes. To say, like, let me tell you about the man Absolutely. who saved my life. It doesn't seem like his wife has ever heard of this story I before. know. And so, I mean, his wife is, like, A, the only woman who talks in the film. But B, you know, and she's, like, in the last minute. Uh, but she's just like, <laughs> no, you were, you were good. 
it like just looks at him like, what's happening? And well, so it, it's this thing I get, I mean. And I also feel like this before, movie. Wait, before I get, I will get yelled at for this. So I just want yeah. to say, I know that people kept this bottled up. Right. But yet we're talking about the movie language of what's happening here. I, I totally agree. And, and, and I think we're just like kind of unpacking some things too, because the whole movie is based on the premise. Is this one man worth this risk that they're taking? You know, this is a, a, a ridiculous risk. And I think, you know, in many respects, it's not because he's asked to be like evac'd out. You know, it's like this is the government and this is maybe the larger idea of the movie. The movie is like everyone's disposable. Like we need to look good from a, you know, PR standpoint. You know, they're using this letter from Lincoln, which is actually a bastardization of Lincoln's actual letter to justify this, you know, rescuing of this man. And and it really is. I can't to, believe they bastardized the letter and then used it twice. Oh, yeah, it's in there. Uh, like to me, they rescued this man to really help his mother. It well, you know, it's it's not even to help him. It's not like we need to save him. It's like we need to save his mother this grief that she's like. And as a you know, I know it comes up a lot as a parent, I I see that. But um because the stakes are not personal, it's like there's a little bit of an element of like, well, why am I caring? It's just watching, it's like watching a road trip where your main character is not the two people that have the stakes. It's like, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I was a third guy in planes, trains, and automobiles. I, I could get home whenever my wife's cool with me. It doesn't matter if anything I'm, I'm, I, things are good. I'm just hanging out here with Dell and, and Neil. Um, yeah, I know those characters names without even looking them up. I don't, I don't feel like if they miss their mission, I don't feel like I would feel like, oh, you know, it just, it feel I don't know. There's something about this movie that's weighted weirdly that I feel like these bookends and kind of like try to shove it in a bit. Emotional? You get it? Did you get emotional? Hey, everybody, we have to take a brief break in the show to hear a word from our sponsor, and that sponsor is blacktux.com. Fellas, let me talk to you about blacktux.com. It's a service in which they will guarantee that you look better than you have any reason to look. Did you hear what I'm saying? They will deliver to you a suit or tuxedo to your house that you could never afford, that's probably wildly expensive, that you don't have to have any investment in besides the rental. That's it. And you send it back and you get another one for your next event. All of a sudden, you become that cool person who's always wearing those kick-ass tuxes and suits. Here's how it works, okay? You look online. That's easy. We all know how to do that, all right? You find something you like. They send it to your house. You try it on. You feel how it fits. Does it look good? If it does, you send it back, and then you tell them, I need it a couple days before my event. Bingo, bango, it comes to you. You get it two weeks before your event. You check it out one last time, and then you wear it there, and then you got to return it, what, like a couple days after? It's easy as pie, okay? Let me tell you, they got 5,000 five-star reviews. 5,000 five-star reviews. You know how hard that is? Have you ever left a review? If you haven't, leave one for us, but leave one for Black Tux as well, because that means that people actually care. They're like, you know what? It was so good. I got to write a five-star review. Whenever I do it on Yelp, I'm like, I, I can't let this service be uh, go without recognizing it. And I'm going to tell you that you will start to look and feel good because when you can afford to 
change up your game, which just allows you to do, people take notice of you. And that's in job interviews, that's at weddings, that's at funerals. You know what? Who's to say that you shouldn't steal attention at a funeral? Why not? All right. We're all depressed. But if you come in a nice suit, people are going to be like, you know what? I miss Grandpa Joe, but I really like Steve in that kick-ass Versace suit. Um, People... You got plenty of weddings on your agenda, so get yourself a good look when you go, all right? Um, here is the deal. Run your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy $20 off with your offer code UNSPOOLED. That's blacktux.com. Enjoy $20 off with your code UNSPOOLED. Amy, uh, are you listening at all to The Hollywood Handbook? Oh, my God. I love Hayes Davenport. I think uh, he's just the brilliantest dude. And I love Sean Clements. And the together, they make The Hollywood Handbook, which is just one of my favorite uh, funny shows here on Earwolf. And after six years of phoning it in, uh, the boys of Hollywood Handbook have a new approach to hosting the show. They are going to try. Amy, if you've listened to <laughs> Hollywood Handbook before, it's not an easy access show. You got to jump in. You got to know the bits. You know, you got to kind of ease your way in. But these guys, they're going to try because this month they have three of the biggest guests in the show's history, like Weird Al and a couple other people who definitely have already been booked. No, uh, Rolling Stone loves the show. They call them two distinctly not famous people who give listeners advice on how to make it in Hollywood. Plus, their Stitcher Premium subscribers can hear live episodes from their Boys Gone Bad tour every Friday starting March 8th. And they're only going to try for a month, though. This is, this is the whole thing, all right? Then they're going to crash around week three. And that's not their fault. It's probably just the guest, you know, sucked or whatever. Anyway, check out Hollywood Handbook on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I can guarantee you that if you are a little bit interested in Hollywood, if you uh, like uh, some of the comedy podcasts here on Earwolf, you will like these guys. It's one of my favorites. I'm a big fan of Tom Sharpling's show. It it feels like akin to that. It has elements of comedy, bang, bang, but much more Hollywood-specific uh, characters, fun bits, all good times. A Hollywood handbook, wherever you listen to podcasts. I mean, like, one of the things that Spielberg said at the time when the movie came out is he said, is this a mission of mercy or a mission of murder? I can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I kind of wish he had. I kind of right. wish he had an answer for that because I feel like you you might want to know where you're taking it, like right. where you're going with this film. I, I would even argue that Platoon has a cleaner point of view about what we're trying to say. I think this movie is just saying like war is hell, right? Mm-hmm. You'll do anything that you can to get out, to get home soon. These are things that we maybe never saw there. And maybe, you know, for a generation of people who never got that due, like the people who went to Vietnam and saw their stories told by, you know, whether or not you agree with Apocalypse Now, if you're a Vietnam vet, I think you feel a connection to that. I think you feel a connection to Platoon. But this is a movie that I think finally appeals to these veterans who didn't have their stories told or or told yeah. in a way that wasn't sanitized, you yeah. know? From a technical standpoint, the movie is beautifully shot. I think it's amazingly cast. It's a little 90s shot. Sorry. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, wow, wow. Okay, all right, all right. I mean, just the color saturation here, I think. But I wonder I if- I get it. it. It feels like a new tool. But yes. But are we saying that now based on where we've been versus 1998, where I feel like that was probably, you know, once everyone copied it, like Pulp Fiction- I would be curious to watch it again, and we will, because it's sort of, it's duped so many times that, like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, that, I know that. But it's not hackneyed the first time. It's, you know, he's, 
I I don't know. I, I remember seeing it and being like, whoa! It just it. I think the power of it was pretty impressive. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at it through modern eyes, where I'm like, you know, like when you look at a movie where it had a really awesome CG dinosaur, and I'm right. like, that's eh, a little weak. Right. And I'm, I'm aware that I'm sort of putting that on it. When you see sort of like the frame rate skipping around to add to the disorientation, to I add mean, to the stutter stop of yeah. time. You're and like, you wrote that whole essay about how you like when they CGI restored Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars. Love that shit. You know, no, finally just got it back. This is not true. This is all lies. This is all lies. This is fake news. <laughs> Um, but yeah, okay. So to sort of what you're saying though about this through line, what's interesting about the plot is like Spielberg is like, here's your goal. You're going to go find this dude. And then he just keeps screwing with you. They like find a Ryan and it's like mm-hmm. not the right Ryan. They great find- sequence though. That's a great sequence. Like to me, that's the most Spielberg-y fun. Like I'm like, oh, that's a joke. It's great. And the way they treat that guy, like that guy, like is having an emotional breakdown. <laughs> Right. It's like walk away. It's great. It's a great I mean But it's almost yeah. a little like Alice in Wonderlandy, right? Mm-hmm. Like this whole trip feels very Alice in Wonderlandy. Without of the emotional journey of Alice. Yeah, where Alice is actually learning things about herself and nobody is learning anything here. Yes. You know, like he has committed to this idea of this is what war feels like. You don't know what's happening. You don't know where who anybody is. You don't know what's going on. And then he actually maintains that, I would say, for a pretty long time. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't stop and be like do you want to really meet these guys? Do you want to see them like be friends until the two hours yeah. right before they die? Because he's like, oh, if I'm going to kill these guys, I want you to know who they were. And the movie is two hours and 40 minutes. And I have to say that on this watch, it does feel a little bit long. I, I, I feel like because, you know, it is just going from place to place to place to place. And it's like to place, battle, to place, battle, to place, battle. And, you know, you have this scene in the church, which is a great scene. Um, there are like, um, I would almost argue there are like four scenes in the movie. Like, you know, it's like when they're walking, when they're going to kill the uh, the German out in the field and he tells them about being a teacher. And then when they're in the church, it's like you have these like, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but like real scenes where you're exploring the characters are are kind of minimal. It, it, yeah. I mean, like the, the most sort of hangouty the movie gets with getting to know who anybody is, which is not even like what I mean when I say like a good scene. You know, good scene is where like there are people talking, there's actions taken, people are sort of wrestling with ideas, like when they decide what to do with the German, you right. know, and you get to see that all play out. But then it's sort of like, let's listen to Edith Piaf and talk about boobs. Okay. Right. And let's just do that for a while while very, we talk about war because they're like Very really... similar to the Unforgiven uh, Do You Jacket scene. <laughs> but it's sort of like, and now we'll talk about ammo and now we'll talk about where we're going to put ammo and where we're going to fight. And let's just plan a battle. And it just feels very battle forward. And the battles are well shot. It is impressive. Um, but imagine if the battles were like a heist movie, right? You know, because I feel like there's right. two different types of heist movies. There's heist movies that are to me, badly done, mm-hmm. like the new Oceans movie, where you don't really get to- Oceans the, 8. Oceans 8, where you don't really get to watch the enjoyment of the planning of the heist. Right. You just sort of watch it work really well. And they're like, ta-da. Hot take, Oceans 12, best of the franchise. I'm not going to I'm not going to put 8 over it, that's for sure. Right. And then there's the ones where you're like really involved with watching them map out how the plan is supposed right. to work so that when it goes wrong, it just goes wrong. Here it sort of felt like when you watch people talk about ammo to just be like, well, you can't talk about gun control if you don't know that that's like an M6, so blah, 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 yeah. blah, 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 Like, you know, like Tom Hanks, there's sort of this comedy of Tom Hanks knowing ordinances really, really, really well. Right. And just being like, oh, well, we've got that and that and that and just being very, very detailed. And it kind of feels like dudes talking about baseball cards or like data, you know, it's well, a data movie and not like a plot movie. It's important 
like Mike Nichols said, for a movie to be about one thing and also about something else, right? And then we talked about that last week with uh, The Graduate. And I feel like this movie's other thing, besides Saving Private Ryan, is war is hard. But that's not enough. I don't think that that's enough of a, of a thing. I mean, I, I think accuracy was what he was after. Like, right. I think and, he was on this quest for accuracy. And people will say it and, and, and have gone on the record, it is one of the most authentic films ever. And I think the spectacle of this movie is what people remember. Because I don't think that people are even – I think people remember that Matt Damon is Ryan, which wasn't even supposed to be a thing. He was an unknown actor yeah, at the time. Nobody knew who he was. It wasn't a big deal. Yeah, yeah. and then That's all of a sudden – That's how you could do the fake out. Yeah, and it yeah. was supposed to be a big thing. And I think that would have been a, a cleverer way to go about about that I mean which he tried to do um but you remember that he's private Ryan and then you remember this opening sequence which is again an unforgettable in the pantheon of great sequences I put that next to the chariot race in Ben-Hur as far as iconic sequences yeah. I mean let's be real that sequence is why this movie's on the list I think you're right, right. I think that yeah. this is why this movie wins all yeah. these awards too so, sausage party let's just put it in we're done but no uh <laughs> But, I mean, at the time this movie came out, like, here are sort of the things that Spielberg said made it matter. You know, he would talk a lot about how they found the original guys who made the boots in World War II. They still had the pattern. He asked them to make the boots. They made 1,700 pairs in two months. He's like, we got the boots. But he was like, we had all the correct munitions. He's like, most war movies, they're right. like 60% accurate. We even got German ammo. We were shooting German ammo into half a cow. We were shooting German ammo into half a cow dressed in a uniform to make sure we got the sound exactly right. We got 90%, y'all. And then the main thing he really talked about in the press was, well, A, this idea that there had never been a World War II movie like this, and B, Dale Die. Our buddy, Dale I was Dye. glad you were going to bring that up because I, I wanted to talk about this. Dale Die was the um, the Marine veteran who we had on the show in the past. For Platoon. For Platoon, who also trained these guys in a boot camp. So we talked a lot about Dale Dye when we were doing the Platoon episode, how he sent goats down the mountain, freaked everybody out, yelled at them for a really long time. That was his first time in Hollywood getting to do a job like this. He made a very serious career from that point on. If you want your actors to be beaten up and traumatized and formed into a unit, Dale Dye would come in. And by the way, if you uh, want to remember who Dale Dye was from the Platoon episode, he actually makes a cameo here in Save a Planet Run. Let's hear his voice talking about being tough in war. The first voice you're going to hear is Brian Cranston. The second guy who's like, man, life is meaningless, Dale Dye. All four of them were in the same company in the 29th Division, but we split them up after the Sullivan brothers died on the Juno. Uh, any uh, contact with the fourth son, James? No, sir. He was dropped about 15 miles inland near Newville. But that's still deep behind German lines. Mac, there is no way you can know where in the hell he was dropped. General, first reports out of Ike's people at Schaaf said the 101st is scattered all to hell and gone. There's misdrops all over Normandy. Now, assuming Private Ryan even survived the jump, he could be anywhere. In fact, he's probably KIA. And frankly, sir, we go sending some sort of rescue mission, flat-hatting throughout swarms of German reinforcements all along our axis of advance. They're going to be KIA, too. So that's Dale Dye right. showing up being like KIA flatheading, using his correct terminology, giving this film authenticity. Like that's what he does. He first met Tom Hanks when he was on Forrest Gump. Right, in 1994, four yeah. years before. He helped Tom Hanks with all of the uh, with all the Vietnam scenes right. in Forrest Gump. Then he comes back here and he did his Dale Dye thing, which is he gave like endless press interviews being like, 
I don't give a damn who their agents are or what their credits are. The more they're indulged, the more they become blow dryer mentalities, camper dwellers, worse it is on me. And, and he bragged about being like physical and abusive like he loved to do. And, you know, here he is running this boot camp with Tom Hanks and at this point a bunch of no-name actors. I mean, Vin Diesel was working a telemarketing job when he got the call to be in Saving Private Ryan, right? What, I mean, What was he selling? Uh, I don't know, but I would have been buying. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting dynamic because you have this – very established, America's favorite actor, you know, and a bunch of young and up and coming guys. And there's like a five part documentary series on YouTube about this boot camp. And I was going deep in there and, you know, Vin Diesel's talking about it. And he goes, you know, at the moment we were all exhausted. We wanted to leave. And here was this guy who was a superstar who doesn't have to be here. And he voted to stay. That's when we adopted him as our captain. He said, guys, 20 years from now, you'll look back on this and wish to God you had finished it. To this day, we're extremely grateful that we did. And then Tom Hanks goes, I loved it. They all wanted to quit, and I said no. I mean, the actual boot camp was very cold. It was miserable. It was very humiliating. It was exhausting. We didn't get much sleep. We worried about getting sick, and we were worried about getting hurt, but we never worried about those being the six most worthwhile days we could have spent. Six. They were there for six. six. They wanted to leave. They weren't even there for a full week. I love that. Like, that speaks to Dale Dye, and I go, yes, Dale Dye. These guys couldn't – I mean, Tom Hanks, he lasted, no problem. But I love it. It's like the six most worthwhile days we could have had. Six. Six days. Yeah, I think Six. it was like day four. Everybody wanted to go home. And they took a vote. And Tom was like, no. When Saving Private Ryan storms into this year, when mm -hmm. it's like, I am your big Oscar dude again, you're like, you got nothing on me, Shakespeare in love. I mean, this is this was his argument as to why. Like, we are the truth. We are accurate. We are in your face. And we are sending veterans to therapy. They are like, we have therapists at the theaters. They are talking about their families. We are making America... Talk to their grandpa about what happened in the war. Well, it's sort of like getting all the brownie points for doing something right, you know. And I and I feel like this is also the year that Thin Red Line comes out, another movie about war, and that's Malik. And it's hard to kind of even put him in the conversation. You know, he's doing something similar. You know, bigger stars on his side. Um, Tom Sizemore, as a matter of fact, was supposed to be in Thin Red Line, and Spielberg called him up and was like, "Would you rather be with Malik?" Uh, or would you rather be with me? And obviously, they're you know they're two different films, but it's sort of like it's interesting to see in that year. Like That's a little mean Spielberg. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you know, Tom Sizemore made the right choice. By the way, Tom Sizemore great in this film. By the way, uh, Tom Sizemore like having to get a drug test every day. Yeah, because yeah. he was battling drug addiction, yeah. and basically Spielberg said, if you tested positive for drugs on set, even on the last day, I swear to God, I will reshoot every scene you were in. And he uh, passed every single drug test. Um, and yeah, he's relapsed, uh, obviously. Um, but he does some great stuff, especially at the end when he's getting shot the way he takes it. Like, I feel like his mentality almost, or the fact that he was a drug addict and was recovering, like he brought that a little bit into this character. You see something in his character, something in Barry Pepper's character that is just a little bit like more nuanced. And maybe it's just the fact that Barry Pepper you know, has kind of a more pivotal role. Uh, and then the other part is that Sizemore is kind of connected to Tom Hanks too. So I feel like they they have their a lot of bonding. But it's it's interesting yeah. the movie is billed as Ed Burns as being the second one because at that point he's the most successful, you know, or the biggest name. But he kind of is he neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, his Edward Burns's main arc is basically like, this is really stupid. And then towards the end, he like gives Matt Damon a nod and is like, why well, take it back? You're, you're a good guy. You did good. I, I, I like you. That's his big arc. I mean, 
Barry Pepper is interesting. I want to play like our first real glimpse of Barry Pepper, which is in from the opening battle when we learn that he's a great sniper. Yeah. Because Spielberg is doing this thing like you have this chaos, 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 chaos of war. And then suddenly Spielberg is like, I'm going to put some religion in here. Captain, if your mother saw you do that, she'd be very upset. I thought you were my mother. You're not that far from me, oh Lord. Oh my God, I'm sorry for having offended thee. I detest my sins for having offended thee, O Lord. I detest my sins for having offended thee. Listen to me, Lord. All my strength has to help me. So there is something I think right. really interesting there where he's basically saying in the language of film, you have four different soldiers praying, kissing, kissing crucifixes. Yeah. You're doing their routine from our side, from the American side, and it all working out for them. Like this is the moment, the prayer scene, when that opening battle turns. Up until here, we're getting killed. We're getting right. slaughtered. They all pray. And it, if you add it together, it's Spielberg being like, God wants us to win, right? That's right. the only real way I can take out of it. Which is not to say like, I mean, now we're getting, I mean, when the other side is literally Nazis, yes. Right, but, but it's, it's like, a, it's weird in film language a little bit. But don't you bit. feel like, I don't feel like Nazism plays into any of this. I, like, they are incredibly faceless. Like, we don't know much about it. We Like, we just know that these are people at war. You could change out Every specific, you put this in any, you know, besides like the technical aspects of it, this could be any, this is a story that could be told in any war. It really is. Because it has nothing to do with the time nor the enemy. I mean, the only person who really brings in what the Nazis are doing is Adam Goldberg, you know, as as the Jewish private. Because when he gets like the Hitler youth knife, he's like, I'm going to cut my hollow with this. Right. And then he winds up getting stabbed with that knife at the end, which is like, to me, my... Most tragic death. Oh, I mean, it, it is a – that sequence and watching Jeremy Davies and the stairwell, like, there are great sequences. This is a movie that – it's Spielberg. Of course there are amazingly beautiful things. It feels more like – I guess it just like, feel weird when, like, to see Spielberg put his thumb so much on the moral scale of God made his bullet kill that dude in the head. Right. When but don't you think that any – but you see, I, I, I feel like he's saying the POV of – what the soldiers on the other side are saying, what the, you know, it's like, it's sort of what you have to say to get through it. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if Spielberg is saying the U, like United States, God is on the side of the United States. I don't think he's saying that. I, I think, think he's saying that. You do? I do totally think he's saying oh, that. Oh, wow. I do totally think he's saying that. See, if that's the case, then I, I have a, 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 a very big issue with it because I, I felt like it was more just the general trench warfare idea of a soldier. Like if you are watching this, and you are not American, you would feel the same uh, thing because it's about soldiers with soldiers. They're trying to phone this soldier. It's not like we're trying to win this battle. I mean, they are, but the way that we're getting into D-Day isn't about the strategy of World War II. It's like, we need to keep as many of us alive. It, that's how you always look at this movie. You, the audience, are a soldier with this crew. But he does have Pepper pray every time he needs to get the shot done. You know, right. every single time. But that's kind of like a tropey thing, right? It's a thing, tropey right? thing, but when you only, I don't know, it's, it's I think you find God in war. Me. I do not at all fault Hanks for not being like equal time for the Nazis. At right. all, at all. There are not good people on both sides, but there are human people on both sides. And so I am a little curious about how you think he treats violence here because, you know, this kind of mirror thing happens where 
we get torn apart in the very first beginning of this. Mm -hmm. Then we do exactly what happens to us to them in the second half of the opening. Like we're get we get set on fire, they get set on fire. And then he does it again because like at the end of the movie, we have set up the ambush. And so we are just mowing down the Germans in the same way that we were mowed down. There's an equality there. And I can't tell for myself, and I'm curious what you think. I'm curious what the people listening to us think. If Spielberg is saying the Americans also commit atrocities just like what were done to them or if he wants us to be cheering. I don't think he wants us to be cheering, but I can't tell. Well, I don't think that he shows – American soldiers as being flawless. And I think that that is something that was happening in films before this. Like they were, you know, almost like Superman, like, you know, truth, justice in the American way. Because here there are moments like when those two uh, Germans are surrendering, like, we don't understand you. We don't understand you. Boom, boom, boom. You know, or like when they. Yeah. And when I had my subtitles on. So I found out that they were speaking Czech and then they were speaking Czech because they had basically been conscripted. And when, and when you put that together, it means that he's saying these Americans shot these people who shouldn't have been shot. But then he is also saying they're panicking and we just watched a bunch of their friends die. So, okay. But yeah, I think what he shows time and time again, yes, that's one sequence of the, the people speaking Czech. But then there's that other sequence on D-Day where the where the Germans raise their hands. Boom, and they shoot one. Then they put the other ones away. And yes, there's moments where they release, you know, those like the Germans off. And then that one German who stabs Adam Goldberg, like he doesn't kill Jeremy Davies. I think he is showing balance. I don't think that you look at this movie and go... American soldiers, they did the right thing. Like, I remember talking to my grandma, who was Italian, and she was like, you know, Italian soldiers never did anything wrong in World War II. It was the German soldiers who did everything wrong. You know, they were the ones, you know, the Italian soldiers would give their food to uh, other kids if they were starving on the street. And I'm like, that's the perspective that, you know, it's like, no, of course we didn't do anything wrong. And I do think that these guys are like they're not the worst but they're not the best it's not like it's not like the people that are setting the town on fire in platoon and you know raping women but i think there's a middle ground too i think that they know that no one will care if they shoot this person in the head and and they'll move on and yeah. they won't feel bad about it and weirdly i'm i'm okay with that right. because i think we will progress more as a people when we realize both sides get are really fucked up a lot of the right. times. By the way, I do want to talk again about the soundscaping here. I know we talked about at the beginning with like the head going in and out of the water or the camera going in and out of the water. There's this really interesting sound montage that you hear as the men are walking through France where you hear water start to fall on leaves right. and then the leaves turn into bullets. It's really cool. Let's listen to that. They're overlapping. sure what yeah. it means if it's something just as simple as bullets are as heavy as rain if it means like this is the natural state of what our life is i'm well, not sure what it means i mean isn't there a part of it just being like every sound sounds alike in war too i mean if we're talking about this idea of like war is just this all-encompassing all around you can't escape it like even the rain the beautiful sounds of the rain which you i don't know i come to love is kind of even dampened by war because it just all it just sounds like bullets yeah i mean there is something interesting in like what do you even flinch at if it all sounds the same yeah. and they are referring a lot of the times to like weapons and things as thunder and then like, there's this kind of interesting moment towards the end too where like they take the tanks that are approaching and they make the tanks seem alive so maybe there's just something he's going with in that war is an animal that war is just alive i love that and i have to say those tanks are 
as scary as Transformers to me. Yeah. Like that one tank when it comes so close to the soldier's head and when they're throwing those like kind of uh, those bombs on the wheels, I was like, wow, it really just got me. It really is a, an intense moment. Yeah, let's listen to those tanks. It's a ton of infantry, Captain. I don't know if they took the bait though. Sounds like an undersea monster. Even the treads almost sound like breath. Yeah. I mean, it's, I love that. I really, I'm giving me a whole different impression of this film. But what's interesting is I think that Spielberg is such a sucker for like dramatic, dark comic irony. You know, we talked mm-hmm. about this a lot in Schindler's List. You know, how we kept sort of adding these bitter jokes yeah. to things like the girlfriend of Ray Fiennes rolling her eyes that he keeps shooting people through the window. Right, right. And he does that again here in 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 Private Ryan a lot. You know, like he has somebody narrowly like have a bullet ricochet off their helmet and live. They're like, oh, you're lucky. And he takes off his helmet and he immediately gets shot in the head. Right. Or you have these guys on the battlefield trying so hard to stop the bleeding of another man. And they're like, we got to do it. We got to do it. Oh, we did it. His bleeding stops and he immediately get shot in the head again and in both times like Spielberg is using like dark bleak ironic death right, as right, like right. kind of a gimmick and then he does that a joke that sort of has like a one-two punch over the entire second half you know we have this German here let's listen to the German the German okay. who's begging for his life by like name dropping everything he knows in English please I like America Fancy schmancy what a sense go fly a kite get like your tongue cool of beans Betty Boob, what a dish. Betty Grable, nice scams. So then you have this debate, like, between everybody. Everybody in this scene except for Jeremy Davies wants to kill this guy. Right. Because their friend, because a Giovanna Ribisi just died, they're mad. They want to, you know, get some punishment. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy Davies, a Pam, is like... I want to let him live. Let's let him live. And he makes this argument. You know, Jeremy Davies, who has been portrayed up until now as a guy who's an idiot in a lot of ways. like A bumbling fool. Bumbling. He knocks over helmets. His choices are never right. He's annoying everybody. They want him to go away. He's the pest. But he's like, I want to do this one thing. Give me this. So they do. They let the German go. And it's this German who comes back and, like, kills Tom Hanks and everybody. Right. And – what is that? Is that like just a dram- another long form dramatic joke? Like, but I'm yeah, I think or it's like it, irony, right? Yeah, or is it saying up him was wrong and you should have murdered this guy? Like, what's happening? Or is here? it just saying it doesn't make a difference? Like, if it wasn't that guy, it would be another guy. I think it's dramatic irony. I hear what you're saying, but I feel like when you're not anything but brutal, you will be hurt by that in war. There is no. There is no nice guy in war. And why I think people are going to therapy and I think why this movie uh, connects with so many people, especially uh, World War II veterans, is because it absolves them of the guilt. It's saying like if you do kill this guy or if you didn't kill this person, he may come back again. You know, and again, I think it's agnostic of side. I think it's just sort of like it's just saying this is war and you have to be okay with – you will make mistakes, you won't make mistakes, but you can't hold yourself accountable because if you do, you will drive yourself insane. I right? hear that. And yeah. I like that theory. 
And yet at the same time, I feel like the movie goes really hard on Upham still. Mm-hmm. Do you know? I feel oh, like- Oh, it definitely makes him out to be like the pa- – like if he's the pacifist, yeah. it makes the pacifist to be the silly one. Exactly. I, I think like Upham is the guy who, you know, in a lot of ways, like if Upham had more courage, like what's happening at the end? You know, uh, Matt Damon has run out of ammo and he's like, I need more ammo. Right. We see that Upham has all the ammo. Yep. It's all around his neck, and he won't do anything about it. He won't help. He won't help it get to anybody. He hears his friends getting killed upstairs. He hears them getting right. stabbed, and he can't do anything about but, it. And I think the movie—it's interesting because, like Spielberg, in all of his interviews at the time, was like, "I am Upham," but I feel like Spielberg does not like Upham. Forgive me for belittling war by this analogy, but I will say that um, I did this movie where we were. I'm laughing that I'm even bringing this up. Um, paintball players, right? And so when we first went out to do paintball, they put us with like professional players. And paintball seems so fun, whatever. And these guys were like out to just beat our asses. Like, and of course, you know, like we're we've never held a paintball gun, and these guys are all the people that are gonna these pros. And it started, the match started, and I like ran behind a wall and just the paint pellets that were just slamming into this wall like like to a point i was like it's the closest i've ever gotten into a live action you know gunfight in the sense of the amount of bullets and the peril the paralysis that you have like well i'm not going anywhere what what is there to do here i know that not only am i going to get hit if i move out of this thing but i'm going to get like hit multiple times so i think there is something about this guy. This is the guy that did not come with Tom Hanks's character on other journeys. He just is there because he's a translator who is like, "What the fuck? I'm not. I'm not cut out for this. I don't want to be here." And 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 I think there are people in war that are like that. Like he's not a bad guy. And I think that that as much as it absolves everybody who killed somebody recklessly, it absolves him and says, "You're not bad for not giving the ammo. You're not bad for not stopping your friend from being killed because you're still here." I don't know if that makes sense or. Yes and yes and no. Like yes, yes, it makes sense. Like I would be an upum. Like right. I, I don't know how to hurt anything. I've been, just, I've decided to let the daddy long legs in my ass live. You know. Well, that's good. Spiders. I'm just like, to you live. know what, guys, I can't, I can't kill anything right, right now. So I don't think that all that would be. But you ever did put like, him in like a prison camp. Well, they're making me some socks. All right. Yeah, I would never be like. I would save the day, right. but I think that when the movie has him in a hallway, as we're watching braver people than him die and he could have helped them twice right i think the movie is judging him i do think the movie is judging him even though i'm not saying i wouldn't do the same thing okay isn't it weird that this whole movie is about like are all of us worth the life of matt damon when the movie is also basically like if this dude hadn't come we'd all be fine well i mean look this is why you know we we talk about it all the time in this podcast none of the best jobs are gonna be found on the job board right you got to go out you got to talk to the real people and that's I forgot to. <laughs> uh, oh my God. You want a translator? LinkedIn. Yeah. Like, like, Look like, for like, one that's not going to run in battle. I like, <laughs> but I do think it reflects things about war because, yes, he's this scaredy cat. But I would also argue that the tropes in this film of the archetypes of the he's from New York, he's this guy, he's that guy, they're not like giant. They're not like. They, they've seen them be much more egregious in other films, you know? Yeah. I mean, to me, the weirdest one is just when Barry Pepper has, like, a piece of straw in his mouth. And I'm like, okay, come on. <laughs> I'm from Oklahoma. We don't – well, Texas and Oklahoma. We don't, say, we don't do that. Yeah. But um, – I was picking my most my most 
hay in, in the imagery of people putting hay in their mouth. Hey, look, I, I lived, I had a barn on my and my house property, and I was up in the hay stall all the time. What? Bailing oh, hay. you win. Uh, you oh yeah. Me. Oh come on, I had I was bailing hay. And I never put straw in my mouth. It's disgusting. Why would I ever? Why would I ever? It's gross. Um, would, oh gosh, I was about to make this detour about how, in the new documentary about Dr. Ruth, she says she lost her virginity in a pile of hay and a straw. And I was like, that ooh. just sounds itchy. No, whenever I've gone to a haunted hayride, I'm like, this is the worst. Can we take the hay out of it? Like, why do we need that? Like, what is fun about soggy, wet, disgusting hay that now I have to sit in for 30 minutes while a clown jumps out at me? Like, just I'm happy sitting on a bench with no back. Give me that. I'm fine. You still need to be the in clown? hay. What? You still want the clown? Of course. I'm going on a haunted hayride. I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I know what I'm there for. But, you know, speaking about performances, though, I think that Jeremy Davies does a great job at not belittling the character. The movie might be judging the character or you as an audience member might be judging the character because that's really our point of view is we're watching him. It's, you know, I think that everybody here does a great job at playing a, a, a realistic version of these people. Yeah, I mean, and I do like this idea. You know, to me, Tom Hanks is Jimmy Stewart of now. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jimmy Stewart slash Gary Cooper. I would say a little more Jimmy because I think he's a little more charming. Right. Um, but I kept thinking watching Saving Private Ryan this time, you know, all that Jimmy Stewart wanted to do in It's a Wonderful Life was go to war. And right. you would have gone to this war. So are we basically watching like the alt version of like if Jimmy Stewart from A Wonderful Life had gotten to leave town and go to war? Well, there was something I was thinking about because, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart's brother goes to war, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in that film. And what if his brother was Tom Hanks? Like this real, like he had this adventure. And, and I think there is something really cool about what this film is doing, which is you know, this is a time where people were at the height of their patriotism. They wanted to be there. They wanted to fight for their country. It's almost like there was a secret that they were in on that no one else really got to see. And I like the idea of like a very clean cut soldier, like the way you see he gets all these amazing opportunities. But like, what if he was like just brutal out there in World War II? And I think it's it's imagery that we don't often see in that era. And I think that, that since this film has come out, we see more and more of it. So I, I, I do believe that the people that we probably grew up with, our family members who fought in World War II, they don't seem like these, you know, these hardened, down, like, you know, like, or maybe people are just now more open about it where it was much more closed off for World War II. And, I, yeah. and I, I'm not basing that. I don't have any knowledge. You can come at me with stats and go, actually, you're totally wrong. But that's at least my yeah, perspective. Like having the it. language to know that you could talk about it. I mean, both, both of my grandparents were in World War II. Mine too. And one of mine was in China and the other one was in Germany. Um, neither of them are actually soldiers. I, right. If I don't, I suppose I should say, I don't know if it makes a big difference. One of them was a medic in China and the other one was a cook in Germany. And Both of mine were soldiers. Oh, wow. But never spoke about it in a way yeah. that wasn't like, um, very like, yep, yeah, we were there and we did it. And, you know, it was yeah. like, yeah. Mine didn't talk about it at all. And okay. I knew that it mattered to them because like they would go on reunions, especially mm-hmm. my one who was in China. I know that whatever happened in China was bad. Right. Um, cause my mother would talk about just how, how it was like growing up with them. Right. Yeah, I guess you do really get the sense from them that they were never going to talk about it except for with their friends. Right. Yeah. I mean, so in a way, if you're putting yourself in the position of an audience member who is a World War II vet, and this comes at a time when I think, you know, they are the old Matt Damon age, how cathartic is this film and how important is this film yeah, in that way? Yeah, I wish I could talk to them about it. I didn't get to talk to them about it. Yeah, because I think that – you know, there may be an argument, I think, as we talk about this film, I, I think it would be a no-brainer for us to say, I don't know if it belongs in the list, you know. But if you have a film that broaches a subject that's never really been 
examined or discussed for a certain bunch of people, does that like kind of, you know, shortcut it to being important enough to be on the list? It's like at least a, at least a debate. Yeah. I mean, there are so many war movies on the list. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, it, I think there is sort of a thing of like, is war the only thing worth talking about? Well, I mean, the other question is, why is everyone attracted to making a war film? Yeah, because they get taken seriously. I mean, um, because they yeah. because they're hard to criticize. It's hard to criticize a war movie. You I know. mean, I wish it wasn't so Teflon because right. you know, even to the point where it's like, hey, there's really no women who talk in this movie. You right. know, and I mean, the, well, there see, weren't any women in World War Two, right? Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's like this narrowing of interests, right? And he does, you know, there's a shot in here where you get to see uh, Private Ryan's mother, mm-hmm. and you get to see that Spielberg. Loves the searchers. He gives right. it the searchers treatment. You know, the woman inside the house in the frontier, the the broad escape of grass, that's the expanse of grass that's in front of her, the person approaching, you know, sort of like John Wayne did, but now it's a Jeep with a soldier in it to tell her about all three of her sons. The shot of her opening the door, framed through the door, you know, he's very much wow, that is a dr- yeah, wow, it's complete yeah. searchers. Oh, it's his absolute, absolute like salute to the searchers. And, you know, you made the point that, like, we're doing this all for her, and we don't hear her speak, I believe, you know? And I don't, I'm don't. i not saying that this would be a better movie if we kept cutting back to her, like, boy, I hope they find my son. Right. That's a bad idea. It needs right. to be where it is. When I talk about how I sort of roll my eyes a little bit about how masculine this list is, it really is because these are the stories we find important, mm-hmm. you know? And we find important stories that, like, don't invite women. Yeah. That's all. We clearly have picked apart this movie in different ways. Or there are people out there that didn't love this movie because here's a movie that I thought up until when I rewatched it was just universally loved and it was a great film. You know, when I rewatched Schindler's List, I was like, oh my God, this movie is actually more watchable than I thought. Um, it, it While it's dramatic and, and moving, it, it also just kind of pulls me in. But this is a movie that wins everything. You know, it gets best director, best cinematography, best sound, best effects. It best loses film best editing. picture to Shakespeare in Love and everybody's right. mad about it. But you know what? I like Shakespeare in Love. What are you going to do? There you go. You like a rom-com. <laughs> I, do. I, no, I do. No shame in that Just game. because people don't die in Shakespeare in Love. No shame in that. My <laughs> wife wrote a rom-com and uh, she's going to be at the rom-com fest. What? Yeah. yeah and yeah. your wife is in a rom-com that I can't wait to see it. Oh, yes. Like. The long shot. It's going to be very good. I'm yeah. looking forward to that. You know, Amy, just to add one more thing to it, you know, three out of the five movies nominated for Academy Awards this year were World War II movies. Life is Beautiful, okay, which is interesting. Uh, it's kind of a, another version of Schindler's List. Thin Red Line and Saving Private Ryan. That, that's pretty interesting. It's a pretty heavy year. And I wonder if it was just, you know, in the collective unconscious. Like there are these times where I feel like, you know, we talked about it in our Oscar specials. You know, I feel like this year, uh, the 2019 Oscars, there's a, a similar theme going on, you know, um, and and talking about these bigger issues. I, but this is very narrow what the issue was. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it was a little bit of like a generation feeling like they were getting pushed out yeah. and saying like, we need to make sure that you remember us, which is important because it, they're right. And in, in like, if you were going to talk about what happened in World War II to your grandpa, it would have been now. Like right. you had to kind of do it now, right. you know? Yeah. And this idea of like, before we can't talk about this, we need to talk about it with the people who are there. Um, You know what's interesting about when Saving Private Ryan came out is because it came out in something that you actually used to start this episode, the Clinton scandal. Mm-hmm. 
Everybody wrote a hot take about that. Oh, really? And they were saying, like, how interesting it is in the summer of Clinton scandals, this taps a yearning for honor, is what people kept calling it. This idea of really drawing a line that Clinton is of the baby boom generation. He's a Vietnam brat, skipped the war, blah, 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 smoked weed. He sucks compared to the men of the past. We needed a guy like that. We needed Bob Dole. Y'all fucked we need, up. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Exactly. Yeah. Y'all fucked up and you should have had Dole in office. You oh, voted wow. in this guy instead. You know, right. you didn't give us our World War II veteran. So it was really this moment where it came out kind of taking a side in a culture war, even though, I mean, Spielberg's on the other side. Spielberg right. didn't get to go to war. Spielberg is of the Clinton generation. Yet people really saw it through well, that Well, this lens. is probably where the birth of the greatest generation comes, right? I mean, this is where, like, was Tom Brokaw writing this book? I feel like this is where this generation really comes into full view in a way that is more meaningful. I, I remember this, like, this generation being spoken about much more. Yeah, exactly. So you said there's a lot of hot takes. Bob Dole in office, but were there negative reviews? Yeah, one of the one that I pulled because it was the absolute meanest. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from Esquire. It's a takedown right before the Oscars, kind of wow. like how we see still. You know, people yeah. being like, "I'm going hard on Green Book and yeah. say, yeah." So this was an Esquire. It's by uh, Tom Carson. The title was, "And the Lenny Riefenstahl Award for Rabid Nationalism Goes to." Wow. And it was. Uh, it ran with a cartoon of a fat Spielberg Whoa. Uh, in front of a fireball chewing on the American flag. So here's one of the lines he uses to begin. In a fallacy that since Schindler's List, Spielberg has all but patented, to dislike his movie is to proclaim your snickering contempt for the hell that dad or granddad went through. I do agree with – I mean, already I'll say I agree with that because I think it's very hard to criticize something that is based in historical truth. He says that Spielberg has gotten huge credit for showing us combat's terrors, but except for Tom Hanks' brief mute area of day's shock, he doesn't show us any of his good guys acting terrified, which means that they are superhuman. And then he points out something really interesting, that the celebrated opening is actually superfluous to the story. Interesting. Which it is. You know, it like, really is, This yeah. is a story about saving Private Ryan and what right. that mission is. For half an hour, he doesn't matter. He's, like, not there. He's not part of the story. He didn't go through that. He's in that opening prologue, but it skips then to him, like, an hour later. Yeah. That's yeah. really interesting. Well, and also, I think what I love about that opening, and this is one thing I will say in defense of it, and I wrote this down, it just shows that it's another battle. We talk about D-Day, like, oh, my God, D-Day, D-Day, D-Day. But this movie puts it in a position where it's, like, and. It was just a Tuesday or it was a Monday, whatever it was, because every other battle after is just as intense, maybe not as like brutal, but it does. It doesn't seem like the soldiers react like, holy shit, we shouldn't be saving Private Ryan. We should be on vacation now. It's just like it's like, no, what's next? Nah, OK. And I do like that idea, that matter of factness to it, because we look at it and we go, that was the day. But it's like, no, these this is every day for these soldiers. And I did like that. I did like that idea. of it. Exactly. And he does call this like opening sequence like a brilliant piece of showmanship. But he says that it um, half cows and half wows the audience into accepting that the whole movie has been made in the same yes. somber, gritty spirit. Yes. And that it hasn't. Because then he says that the movie comfortably dilates into the longest, most overblown episode of the old TV series, Combat. Wow. And then he closes out by saying, the movie makes fighting Nazism look like an opportunity younger generations have been cheated of. Honestly, I can't see that Hitler would have wanted to change much in Saving Private Ryan except the color of the uniforms. Well, you know what, by the way, I, I, but that's why I feel like that, that's why I feel like this movie isn't about, one, it's about who, what side views it. Um, you know, I know this is normally your bag, 
But I did pull one uh, negative review as well. You did? Yes. Go um, on. This is from Andrew Saris uh, of The Observer. And he wrote, and I just, it's brief, and that's why I kind of wanted to pull it. Prodigiously produced and researched, ambitiously acted and grand eloquently scored by the eternal John Williams, Steven Spielberg, Saving Private Ryan, is the ultimate buddy-buddy picture of the 90s with surprisingly little moral, historical, or emotional resonance, which is to say I found it as tediously manipulative despite its Herculean energy. Still, the nearly three-hour-long boom-boom shaggy dog story set in the time and place of D-Day in 1944 is a kind of hot air balloon that wins Oscars for its production values alone. And these, I concede, are considerable. <laughs> I mean, well, so it's interesting. I mean, I think people had a, an interesting reaction to it. I thought it was beloved. And, you know, Saris is a, is a, a well-known critic as, as the one that you pulled as well. Um, so I think, are we disagreeing that this does not belong on the list? Yeah. Okay. I yeah. think no 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 fight there. I know that we'll probably take it hard on the comments. Um But you know what? I just want to say like five Spielbergs, many war movies. Do we need five Spielbergs? Do we need five this? of any directors? No. I mean, I I ultimately would love to live in a world where we distill every director down to one film. I mean, just for representation. We are, again, we always go back to this idea. And this is not about, you know, trying to be PC or overly woke, but when you have a, a list that is so sorely underrepresented by different races and sex, why are we doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on directors? Like we, there's space to be made. And I don't think anyone would argue with the idea that one film per director, like it would, it would in, a, in an amazing way, give us so many slots to take. And it, it doesn't mean that those other films aren't good, but it's like, we're trying to give a, breath of the best films of all time and by going to the well five times on one director and i agree that steven spielberg is one of the best american directors of all time but we can have the steven spielberg list and you can put all of his movies yeah. on that you know it's a i mean my god there's a part of me that's like can't we give him two but then there's a part of me that's like what? well definitely if we give him like, if we give him two it's de this one is not making it on we have right. this big right i would say two I, I would give two. i would give all right so you yeah. know what i've already conceded i'll give him two <laughs> um amy was there a simpsons i feel like there has to be a simpsons for saving private ryan there was a simpsons can i guess that someone gets shot in the face or is that too violent for simpsons yeah all the simpsons get murdered <laughs> no, this is from the episode little orphan millie okay uh millhouse his parents are lost at sea and when he gets the news, it is filmed exactly like Saving Private Ryan. With the music. <laughs> Millhouse Van Houten? <laughs> yes? Son, your parents have been lost at sea. I'm sorry. Oh my God! I said I didn't care if they ever came back! This is my fault! <laughs> hey, who died? My parents, probably. So you guys aren't ice cream men? Amazing. Um, by the way, you know, is it a tribute to Saving Private Ryan or The Searchers? Whoa. All right, Paul. I am rolling the die. Here we go. Hitting the Purell. Hitting the headphones. Stopping. 185. Ooh, 85 is 
A Night at the Opera, going back to the Marx Brothers. Whoa, speaking of repetition. Uh, yeah, we really are kind of knocking off the uh, the doubles on the list. But uh, here's a movie that maybe I would argue could stay on the list because different writers, different directors. So maybe, you know, under my very strict guidelines of this list. Um, well, Amy, I thought that maybe an interesting uh, call to action for our listeners would be who would you cast as the new Marx Brothers. I know that's kind of a, a bigger idea, but like you would need, a, you know, kind of a, a wordsmith like uh, Groucho. You need a physical comedian like Harpo. You'd need a kind of a character fun person like uh, Chico. So uh, if you want to add Zeppo, we'll give you an extra point. And if you want to really be creative, give us your brand new Margaret DeMont because she is such an, a crucial part of of the Marx Brothers. So uh, if you want to do that, give us a call at 747-666-5824 with your new version of the Marx Brothers, 747-666-5824. Amy, I want to give a big shout out to Morgan Messenheimer for her additional research that she brings to the table. And also, we have our amazing unspooled poster where you can play along with us. And if you want to go all in, you can even roll along with us where you could get a poster and a die together in a prize pack. That's podswag.com. Amy, uh, anything you want to plug? We don't often plug on this show. Anything you want to plug? Uh, actually, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be doing this, like, strange mini-series, like, some random one-off things. Yeah. Um, it's a podcast called Zoom, and we uh, are just launching the trailer right now, and we're going to have two episodes this month, and then maybe, like, see what our next episodes are going to be, but uh, episode wow. one drops March 13th. It is an episode all about Hollywood and alien movies. Whoa. And episode two drops next week on the 20th, March 20th. It's all about... Hollywood and horse movies. So I'm just going to like dive into the into like the history of, th- of stuff I find really interesting. I love it. Is uh, War Horse going to be a part of it? <laughs> Sorry, Keeping- Spielberg, you're shut out again. But yeah, it's called Zoom. So uh, subscribe. It's going to be a very, very random eclectic show that comes out whenever the hell it comes out. So uh, I you got to subscribe. It. All right, that's great. And uh, if you would like, uh, please check me out on Black Monday on Showtime every Sunday night at 10 o'clock. Uh, we're up to episode six, uh, episode seven this weekend. We only have uh, three more. And, and uh, I, I really just have been loving the show. Last week's episode was really good. I know I'm on it, so it's weird for me to say it, but it's, I'm seeing it all put together. You're and also, out of cans? You're doing all sorts of stuff. Oh, I'm doing the whole thing. And, um, and if you're a comic book reader this week hitting the shelves... Cosmic Ghost Rider Destroys Marvel History, written by me, my writing partner, Nick Giovanetti. We have a six-episode miniseries. Get that in your comic book shop. It is uh, Cosmic Ghost Rider Destroys Marvel History. The first issue is all about Ghost Rider messing around with the Fantastic Four. Oh, that that sounds awesome. Yeah, it's a a tedious process, but it's super fun and fulfilling, especially when it gets done. Um, All right, we will see you next week for A Night at the Opera. All right, Amy, that is our show, and uh, let's talk about that movie program again. Yeah, I do want to talk about movie, because here's a thing that movie is also doing this month. They are examining autourism, what makes an auteur, and they are picking some of the boldest, wildest people who make the most distinctive films working today. Yeah, tell me about it. We're talking about Christian Petzold, we're talking about Catherine Biyat, oh my God, and they're talking also about Abel Ferrara. They're putting forth movies that I think are really challenging and really interesting to sort of pair them together and see what makes this movie a movie. Like. Abel Farrar is the one I want to talk about right now. Yeah. They are picking two of his movies that I think really made an impact when they came out. King of New York. This has Christopher Walken. Yes. Ah. I love this movie. Yeah. They're pairing that with another movie by him 
444, last day on Earth. If you haven't seen this movie, this movie stars Willem Dafoe and Natasha Leon. The Natasha Leon of Russian Doll. Yes. Brilliant actress. What I kind of like about this service is it's curating an interesting selection of films. This is not just like sign on and you can have access to everything. It's trying to open up your worldview. Um, you know, for example, when we talked about Ida Lupino, like, you know, she self produced these films. Like she got them out. So it, these are films by talented people that are being marketed to a very niche smart crowd you the person right now that's listening i think you're going to get the most out of a, uh, a service like this you can try it free for 30 days at mubi.com slash unspooled that's mubi.com slash unspooled Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point, and we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> ruler of the Eighth Circle! And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.